Section number five of Worlds Within Worlds, The Story of Nuclear Energy by Isaac Asimov. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To learn more or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Blaine Aidan McCoy, Riverside, California. March 2019 Nuclear Fission New Elements In 1934, Enrico Fermi began his first experiments involving the bombardment of uranium with neutrons, experiments that were to change the face of the world. Fermi had found that slow neutrons, which had very little energy, were easily absorbed by atomic nuclei, more easily than fast neutrons were absorbed, and certainly more easily than charged particles were. Often what happened was that the neutron was simply absorbed by the nucleus. Since the neutron has a mass number of 1 and an atomic number of 0, because it is uncharged, a nucleus that absorbs a neutron remains an isotope of the same element, but increases its mass number. For instance, suppose that neutrons are used to bombard hydrogen-1, which then captures one of the neutrons. From a single proton, it will become a proton plus a neutron. From hydrogen-1, it will become hydrogen-2. A new nucleus formed in this way will be at a higher energy, and that energy is emitted in the form of a gamma ray. Sometimes the more massive isotope that is formed through neutron absorption is stable, as hydrogen-2 is. Sometimes it is not, but is radioactive instead. Because it has added a neutron, it has too many neutrons for stability. The best way of adjusting the matter is to emit a beta particle, electron. This converts one of the neutrons into a proton. The mass number stays the same, but the atomic number increases by one. The element rhodium, for example, which has an atomic number of 45, has only one stable isotope, with a mass number of 103. If rhodium-103, 45 protons, 58 neutrons, absorbs a neutron, it becomes rhodium-104, 45 protons, 59 neutrons, which is not stable. Rhodium-104 emits a beta particle, changing a neutron to a proton so that the nuclear combination becomes 46 protons and 58 neutrons. This is palladium-104, which is stable. As another example, indium-115, 49 protons, 66 neutrons, absorbs a neutron and becomes indium-116. 49 protons, 67 neutrons, which gives off a beta particle and becomes tin-116. 50 protons, 66 neutrons, which is stable. 
There are over 100 isotopes that will absorb neutrons and end by becoming an isotope of an element one higher in the atomic number scale. Fermi observed a number of these cases. Having done so, he was bound to ask what would happen if uranium were bombarded with neutrons. Would its isotopes also be raised in atomic number, in this case from 92 to 93? If that were so, it would be very exciting, for uranium had the highest atomic number in the entire scale. Nobody had ever discovered any sample of element number 93, but perhaps it could be formed in the laboratory. In 1934, therefore, Fermi bombarded uranium with neutrons in the hope of obtaining atoms of element 93. Neutrons were absorbed, and whatever was formed did give off beta particles, so element 93 should be there. However, four different kinds of beta particles, different in their energy content, were given off, and the matter grew very confusing. Fermi could not definitely identify the presence of atoms of element 93, and neither could anyone else for several years. Other things turned up, however, which were even more significant. Before going on to these other things, however, it should be mentioned that undoubtedly element 93 was formed, even though Fermi couldn't clearly demonstrate the fact. In 1939, the American physicists Edwin Madison McMillan, born 1907, and Philip Haug Abelson, born 1913, after bombarding uranium atoms with slow neutrons, were able to identify element 93. Since uranium had originally been named for the planet Uranus, the new element beyond uranium was eventually named for the planet Neptune, which lay beyond Uranus. Element 93 is therefore called Neptunium. What happened was exactly what was expected. Uranium-238, 92 protons, 146 neutrons, added a neutron to become uranium-239, 92 protons, 147 neutrons, which emitted a beta particle to become neptunium-239, 93 protons, 146 neutrons. In fact, Neptunium-239 also emitted a beta particle, so it ought to become an isotope of an element even higher in the atomic number scale. This one, element 94, was named plutonium after Pluto, the planet beyond Neptune. The isotope, plutonium-239, formed from neptunium-239, was only feebly radioactive, however, and it was not clearly identified until 1941. The actual discovery of the element plutonium came a year before, however, when neptunium-238 was formed. It emitted a beta particle and became plutonium-238, an isotope that was radioactive enough to be easily detected and identified by Glenn Theodore Seaborg, born 1912, and his co-workers, who completed Macmillan's experiments when he was called away 
to other defense research. Neptunium and plutonium were the first transuranium elements to be produced in the laboratory, but they weren't the last. Over the next 30 years, isotopes were formed that contained more and more protons in the nucleus and therefore had higher and higher atomic numbers. At the moment of writing, isotopes of every element up to and including element 105 have been formed. A number of these new elements have been named for some of the scientists important in the history of nuclear research. Element 96 is curium, named for Pierre and Marie Curie. Element 99 is Einsteinium for Albert Einstein, and element 100 is fermium for Enrico Fermi. Element 101 is Mendelevium for the Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev, who early in 1869 was the first to arrange the elements in a reasonable and useful order. Element 103 is Laurentium for Ernest O. Lawrence. Rutherfordium for Ernest Rutherford has been proposed for element 104. And Hanium for Otto Hahn, 1879 to 1968, a German physical chemist whose contribution we will come to shortly, has been proposed for element 105. Neptunium, however, was not the first new element to be created in the laboratory. In the early 1930s, there were still two elements with fairly low atomic numbers that had never been discovered. These were the elements with atomic numbers 43 and 61. In 1937, though, molybdenum, atomic number 42, had been bombarded with neutrons in Lawrence's laboratory in the United States. It might contain small quantities of element 43 as a result. The Italian physicist Emilio Segre, born 1905, who had worked with Fermi, obtained a sample of the bombarded molybdenum and indeed obtained indications of the presence of element 43. It was the first new element to be manufactured by artificial means and was called technetium, from the Greek word for artificial. The technetium isotope that was formed was radioactive. Indeed, all the technetium isotopes are radioactive. Element 61, discovered in 1945 and named Promethium, also has no stable isotopes. Technetium and Promethium are the only elements with atomic numbers less than 84 that do not have even a single stable isotope. The Discovery of Fission But let us get back to the bombardment of uranium with neutrons research that Fermi had begun. After he had reported his work, other physicists repeated it and also got a variety of beta particles and were also unable to decide what was going on. One way to tackle the problem was to add to the system some stable element that was chemically similar to the tiny traces of radioactive isotopes 
that might be produced through the bombardment of uranium. Afterwards, the stable element could probably be separated out of the mixture, and the trace of radioactivity would, it was hoped, be carried along with it. The stable element would be a carrier. Among those working on the problem were Otto Hahn and his Austrian co-worker, the physicist Lise Meitner, 1878-1968. Among the potential carriers they added to the system was the element barium, which has an atomic number of 56. They found that a considerable quantity of the radioactivity did indeed accompany the barium when they separated that element out of the system. A natural conclusion was that the isotopes producing the radioactivity belonged to an element that was chemically very similar to barium. Suspicion fell at once on radium, atomic number 88, which was very like barium indeed as far as chemical properties were concerned. Lisa Meitner, who was Jewish, found it difficult to work in Germany, however, for it was then under the rule of the strongly anti-Semitic Nazi regime. In March 1938, Germany occupied Austria, which became part of the German realm. Meitner was no longer protected by her Austrian citizenship and had to flee the country and go to Stockholm, Sweden. Hahn remained in Germany and continued working on the problem with the German physical chemist Fritz Strassmann, born 1902. Although the supposed radium which possessed the radioactivity was very like barium in chemical properties, the two were not entirely identical. There were ways of separating them, and Hahn and Strassmann busied themselves in trying to accomplish this in order to isolate the radioactive isotopes, concentrate them, and study them in detail. Over and over again, however, they failed to separate the barium and the supposed radium. Slowly, it began to seem to Hahn that the failure to separate the barium and the radioactivity meant that the isotopes to which the radioactivity belonged had to be so much like barium as to be nothing else but barium. He hesitated to say so, however, because it seemed unbelievable. If the radioactive isotopes included radium, that was conceivable. Radium had an atomic number of 88, only four less than uranium's 92. You could imagine that a neutron being absorbed by a uranium nucleus might make the latter so unstable as to cause it to emit two alpha particles and become radium. Barium, however, had an atomic number of 56, only a little over half that of uranium. How could a uranium nucleus be made to turn into a barium nucleus unless it more or less broke in half? Nothing like that had ever been observed before, and Hahn hesitated to suggest it. While he was nerving himself to do so, however, Lisa Meitner, in Stockholm, receiving reports of what had been done in Hahn's laboratory and thinking about it, decided that, unheard of or not, there was only one explanation. The uranium nucleus was breaking in half. 
Actually, when one stopped to think of it after getting over the initial shock, it wasn't so unbelievable at that. The nuclear force is so short-range it barely reaches from end to end of a large nucleus like that of uranium. Left to itself, it holds together most of the time. But with the added energy of an entering neutron, we might imagine shock waves going through it and turning the nucleus into something like a quivering drop of liquid. Sometimes the uranium nucleus recovers, keeps the neutron, and then goes on to beta particle emission. And sometimes the nucleus stretches to the point where the nuclear force doesn't quite hold it together. It becomes a dumbbell shape and then the electromagnetic repulsion of the two halves, both positively charged, breaks it apart altogether. It doesn't break into equal halves, nor does it always break at exactly the same place, so that there were a number of different fragments possible, which was why there was so much confusion. Still, one of the more common ways in which it might break would be into barium and krypton. Their respective atomic numbers, 56 and 36, would add up to 92. Meitner and her nephew, Otto Robert Frisch, born 1904, who was in Copenhagen, Denmark, prepared a paper suggesting that this was what was happening. It was published in January 1939. Frisch passed it on to the Danish physicist Niels Bohr, 1885-1962, with whom he was working. The American biologist William Archibald Arnold, born 1904, who was also working in Copenhagen at the time, suggested that the splitting of the uranium nucleus into halves be called fission, the term used for the division in two of living cells. The name stuck. In 1939, just about the time Meitner and Frisch's paper was published, Bohr had arrived in the United States to attend a conference of physicists. He carried the news of fission with him. The other physicists attending the conference heard the news and, in a high state of excitement, at once set about studying the problem. Within a matter of weeks, the fact of uranium fission was confirmed over and over. One striking fact about uranium fission was the large amount of energy it released. In general, when a very massive nucleus is converted to a less massive one, energy is released because of the change in the mass defect, as Aston had shown in the 1920s. When the uranium nucleus breaks down through the ordinary radioactive processes to become a less massive lead nucleus, energy is given off accordingly. When, however, it breaks in two to become the much less massive nuclei of barium and krypton, or others in that neighborhood, much more energy is given off. It quickly turned out that uranium fission gave off something like ten times as much nuclear energy per nucleus than did any other nuclear reaction known at the time. Even so, the quantity of energy released by uranium fission was only a tiny fraction of the energy that went into 
the preparation of the neutrons used to bring about the fission. If each neutron that struck a uranium atom brought about a single fission of that one atom. Under these conditions, Rutherford's suspicion that mankind would never be able to tap nuclear energy probably still remained true. He had been dead for two years at the time of the discovery of fission. However, those were not the conditions. The Nuclear Chain Reaction Earlier in this history, we discussed chain reactions involving chemical energy. A small bit of energy can ignite a chemical reaction that would produce more than enough energy to ignite a neighboring section of the system, which would in turn produce still more, and so on and so on. In this way, the flame of a single match could start a fire in a leaf that would burn down an entire forest, and the energy given off by the burning forest would be enormously higher than the initial energy of the match flame. Might there not be such a thing as a nuclear chain reaction? Could one initiate a nuclear reaction that would produce something that would initiate more of the same, that would produce something that would initiate still more of the same, and so on? In that case, a nuclear reaction, once started, would continue of its own accord and in return for the trifling investment that would serve to start it, a single neutron perhaps, a vast amount of breakdowns would result with the delivery of a vast amount of energy, even if it were necessary to expend quite a bit of energy to produce the one neutron that would start the chain reaction one would end with an enormous profit. What's more, since the nuclear reaction would spread from nucleus to nucleus with millionths of a second intervals, there would be in a very brief time so many nuclei breaking down that there would be a vast explosion. The explosion was sure to be millions of times as powerful as ordinary chemical explosions involving the same quantity of exploding material, since the latter used only the electromagnetic interaction while the former used the much stronger nuclear interaction. The first to think seriously of such a nuclear chain reaction was the Hungarian physicist Leo Szilard, 1898-1964. He was working in Germany in 1933 when Adolf Hitler came to power, and, since he was Jewish, he felt it would be wise to leave Germany. He went to Great Britain, and there, in 1934, he considered certain new types of nuclear reactions that had been discovered. In these, it sometimes happened that a fast neutron might strike a nucleus with sufficient energy to cause it to emit two neutrons. In that way, the nucleus absorbing one neutron and emitting two would become a lighter isotope of the same element. But what would happen if each of the two neutrons that emerged from the original target nucleus struck new nuclei and forced the emission of a pair of neutrons from each. There would now be a total of four neutrons flying about, 
and if each struck new nuclei, there would next be eight neutrons, and so on. From the initial investment of a single neutron, there might soon be countless billions initiating nuclear reactions. Zillard, fearing the inevitability of war, and fearing further that the brutal leaders of Germany might seek and use such a nuclear chain reaction as a weapon in warfare, secretly applied for a patent on a device intending to make use of such a nuclear chain reaction. He hoped to turn it over to the British government, which might then use its possession as a way of restraining the Nazis and keeping the peace. However, it wouldn't have worked. It took the impact of a very energetic neutron to bring about the emission of two neutrons. The neutrons that then emerged from the nucleus simply didn't have enough energy to keep things going. It was like trying to make wet wood catch fire. But what about uranium fission? Uranium fission was initiated by slow neutrons. What if uranium fission also produced neutrons as well as being initiated by a neutron? Would not the neutrons produced serve to initiate new fissions that would produce new neutrons and so on endlessly? It seemed very likely that fission produced neutrons and, indeed, Fermi at the conference where fission was first discussed suggested it at once. Massive nuclei possessed more neutrons per proton than less massive ones did. If a massive nucleus was broken up into two considerably less massive ones, there would be a surplus of neutrons. Suppose, for instance, uranium-238 broke down into barium-138 and krypton-86. Barium-138 contains 82 neutrons and krypton-86, 50 neutrons for a total of 132. The uranium-238 nucleus, however, contains 146 neutrons. The uranium fission process was studied at once to see if neutrons were actually given off, and a number of different physicists, including Zillard, found that they were. Now Zillard was faced with a nuclear chain reaction he was certain would work. Only slow neutrons were involved, and the individual nuclear breakdowns were far more energetic than anything else that had yet been discovered. If a chain reaction could be started in a sizable piece of uranium, unimaginable quantities of energy would be produced. Just one gram of uranium undergoing complete fission would deliver the energy derived from the total burning of three tons of coal and would deliver that energy in a tiny fraction of a second. Zillard, who had come to the United States in 1937, clearly visualized the tremendous explosive force of something that would have to be called a nuclear bomb. Zillard dreaded the possibility that Hitler might obtain the use of such a bomb through the agency of Germany's nuclear scientists. Partly through Zillard's efforts, physicists in the United States and in other Western nations opposed to Hitler began a program of voluntary secrecy in 1940 to avoid passing along 
any hints to Germany. What's more, Zillard enlisted the services of two other Hungarian refugees, the physicists Eugene Paul Wigner, born 1902, and Edward Teller, born 1908, and all approached Einstein, who had also fled Germany and come to America. Einstein was the most prestigious scientist then living, and it was thought a letter from him to the President of the United States would be most persuasive. Einstein signed such a letter, which explained the possibility of a nuclear bomb and urged that the United States not allow a potential enemy to come into possession of it first. Largely as a result of this letter, a huge research team was put together in the United States, to which other Western nations also contributed, with but one aim, to develop the nuclear bomb. Albert Einstein, Old Grove Road, Nassau Point, Peconic, Long Island, August 2nd, 1939. F.D. Roosevelt, President of the United States, White House, Washington, D.C. Sir, some recent work by E. Fermi and L. Szilard, which has been communicated to me in manuscript, leads me to expect that the element uranium may be turned into a new and important source of energy in the immediate future. Certain aspects of the situation which has arisen seem to call for watchfulness and, if necessary, quick action on the part of the administration. I believe, therefore, that it is my duty to bring to your attention the following facts and recommendations. In the course of the last four months, it has been made probable through the work of Joliot in France as well as Fermi and Szilard in America, that it may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium, by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements would be generated. Now it appears almost certain that this could be achieved in the immediate future. This new phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed. A single bomb of this type, carried by boat and exploded in a port, might very well destroy the whole port together with some of the surrounding territory. However, such bombs might very well prove to be too heavy for transportation by air. The United States has only very poor ores of uranium in moderate quantities. There is some good ore in Canada and the former Czechoslovakia, while the most important source of uranium is Belgian Congo. In view of this situation, you may think it desirable to have some permanent contact maintained between the administration and the group of physicists working on chain reactions in America. 
one possible way of achieving this might be for you to entrust with this task a person who has your confidence and who could perhaps serve in an inofficial capacity. His task might comprise the following. A. To approach government departments, keep them informed of the further development, and put forward recommendations for government action, giving particular attention to the problem of securing a supply of uranium ore for the United States. B. To speed up the experimental work, which is at present being carried on within the limits of the budgets of university laboratories, by providing funds, if such funds be required, through his contacts with private persons who are willing to make contributions for this cause, and perhaps also by obtaining the cooperation of industrial laboratories which have the necessary equipment. I understand that Germany has actually stopped the sale of uranium from the Czechoslovakian mines which she has taken over. That she should have taken such early action might perhaps be understood on the ground that the son of the German Undersecretary of State, von Weizsäcker, is attached to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, where some of the American work on uranium is now being repeated. Yours very truly, Albert Einstein. The Nuclear Bomb Although the theory of the nuclear bomb seemed clear and simple, a great many practical difficulties stood in the way. In the first place, if only uranium atoms underwent fission, a supply of uranium had at least to be obtained in pure form. For if the neutrons struck nuclei of elements other than uranium, they would simply be absorbed and removed from the system, ending the possibility of a chain reaction. This alone was a heavy task, since there had been so little use for uranium in quantity that there was almost no supply in existence and no experience in how to purify it. Second, the supply of uranium might have to be a large one, for neutrons didn't necessarily enter the first uranium atom they approached. They moved about here and there, making glancing collisions and traveling quite a distance, perhaps, before striking head-on and entering a nucleus. If, in that time, they had passed outside the lump of uranium, they were useless. As the quantity of uranium within which the fission chain reaction was initiated grew larger, more and more of the neutrons produced found a mark, and the fission reaction would die out more and more slowly. Finally, at some particular size, the critical size, the fission reaction did not die at all, but maintained itself, with enough of the neutrons produced finding their mark to keep the nuclear reaction proceeding at a steady rate. At any greater size, the nuclear reaction would accelerate and there would be an explosion. It wasn't even necessary to send neutrons into the uranium to start the process. 
in 1941, the Russian physicist Georgi Nikolaevich Flerov, born 1913, found that every once in a while a uranium atom would undergo fission without the introduction of a neutron. Occasionally, the random quivering of a nucleus would bring about a shape that the nuclear interaction could not bring back to normal, and the nucleus would then break apart. In a gram of ordinary uranium, there is a nucleus undergoing such spontaneous fission every two minutes on the average. Therefore, enough uranium need only be brought together to surpass critical size, and it will explode within seconds. For the first nucleus that undergoes spontaneous fission will start the chain reaction. First estimates made it seem that the quantity of uranium needed to reach critical size was extraordinarily great. Fully 99.3% of the metal is uranium-238, however, and as soon as fission was discovered, Bohr pointed out that there were theoretical reasons for supposing that it was the uranium-235 isotope, making up only 0.7% of the whole, that was the one undergoing fission. Investigation proved him right. Indeed, the uranium-238 nucleus tended to absorb slow neutrons without fission, and then go on to beta-particle production that formed isotopes of neptunium and plutonium. In this way, uranium-238 actually interfered with the chain reaction. In any quantity of uranium, the more uranium-235 present and the less uranium-238, the more easily the chain reaction would proceed and the lower the critical size needed. Vast efforts were therefore made to separate the two isotopes and prepare uranium with a higher than normal concentration of uranium-235, enriched uranium. Of course, there was no great desire for a fearful explosion to get out of hand while the chain reaction was being studied. Before any bomb could be constructed, the mechanism of the chain reaction would have to be studied. Could a chain reaction capable of producing energy for useful purposes as well as for bombs be established? To test this, a quantity of uranium was gathered in the hope that a controlled chain reaction of uranium fission could be established. For that purpose, control rods of a substance that would easily absorb neutrons and slow the chain reaction were used. The metal, cadmium, served admirably for this purpose. Then, too, the neutrons released by fission were pretty energetic. They tended to travel too far too soon and get outside the lump of uranium too easily. To produce a chain reaction that could be studied with some safety, the presence of a moderator was needed. This was a supply of small nuclei that did not absorb neutrons easily, but absorbed some of the energy of collision and slowed down any neutron that struck it. Nuclei such as hydrogen-2, beryllium-9, or carbon-12 were useful moderators. 
when the neutrons produced by fission were slowed, they traveled a smaller distance before being absorbed in their turn, and the critical size would again be reduced. Toward the end of 1942, the initial stage of the project reached a climax. Blocks of graphite containing uranium metal and uranium oxide were piled up in huge quantities. Enriched uranium was not yet available. In order to approach critical size, this took place under the stands of a football stadium at the University of Chicago with Enrico Fermi, who had come to the United States in 1938, in charge. The large structure was called an atomic pile at first because of the blocks of graphite being piled up. The proper name for such a device and the one that was eventually adopted was, however, nuclear reactor. On December 2, 1942, calculations showed that the nuclear reactor was large enough to have reached critical size. The only thing preventing the chain reaction from sustaining itself was the cadmium rods that were inserted here and there in the pile and that were soaking up neutrons. One by one, the cadmium rods were pulled out. The number of uranium atoms undergoing fission each second rose, and finally, at 3.45 p.m., the uranium fission became self-sustaining. It kept going on its own, with the cadmium rods ready to be pushed in if it looked as though it were getting out of hand, something calculations showed was not likely. News of this success was announced to Washington by a cautious telephone call from Arthur Holly Compton, 1892-1962, to James Bryant Conant, born 1893. Quote, the Italian navigator has landed in the New World, unquote, said Compton. Conant asked, quote, how were the natives, unquote, and the answer was, quote, very friendly, unquote. This was the day and moment when the world entered the nuclear age. For the first time, mankind had constructed a device in which the nuclear energy being given off was greater than the energy poured in. Mankind had tapped the reservoirs of nuclear energy and put it to use. Had Rutherford lived but six more years, he would have seen how wrong he was to think it could never be done. The people of Earth remained unaware of what had taken place in Chicago, and physicists continued to work toward the development of the nuclear bomb. Enriched uranium was successfully prepared. Critical sizes were brought low enough to make a nuclear bomb small enough to be carried by plane to some target. Suppose one had two slabs of enriched uranium, each below critical size, but which were above critical size if combined. And suppose an explosive device were added that, at some desired moment, could be set off in such a way that it would drive one slab of enriched uranium against the other. 
there would be an instant explosion of devastating power. Or, suppose the enriched uranium were arranged in loosely packed pieces to begin with so that the flying neutrons were in open air too often to maintain the chain reaction. A properly arranged explosion might compress the uranium into a dense ball. Neutron absorption would become more efficient and again an explosion would follow. On July 16, 1945, a device that would result in a nuclear explosion was set up near Alamogordo, New Mexico, with nervous physicists watching from a safe distance. It worked perfectly. The explosion was tremendous. By that time, Nazi Germany had been defeated, but Japan was still fighting. Two more devices were prepared. After a warning, one was exploded over the Japanese city of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, and the other over Nagasaki two days later. The Japanese government surrendered and World War II came to an end. It was with the blast over Hiroshima that the world came to know it was in the nuclear age and that the ferocious weapon of the nuclear bomb existed. The popular name for it at the time was atomic bomb or A-bomb. During the war, German scientists may have been trying to develop a nuclear bomb, but if so, they had not yet succeeded at the time Germany met its final defeat. Soviet physicists under Igor Vasilyevich Kurchatov, 1903-1960, were also working on the problem. The dislocation of the war, which inflicted much more damage on the Soviet Union than on the United States, kept the Soviet effort from succeeding while it was on. However, since the Soviets were among the victors, they were able to continue after the war. In 1949, the Soviets exploded their first nuclear bomb. In 1952, the British did the same. In 1960, the French. And in 1964, the Chinese. Although many nuclear bombs have been exploded for test purposes, the two over Hiroshima and Nagasaki have been the only ones used in time of war. Nor need nuclear bombs be considered as having destructive potential only. There is the possibility that, with proper precautions, they might be used to make excavations, blast out harbors or canals, break up underground rock formations to recover oil or other resources, and in other ways, do the work of chemical explosives with far greater speed and economy. It has even been suggested that a series of nuclear bomb explosions might be used to hurl space vehicles forward in voyages away from Earth. Nuclear Reactors The development of the nuclear chain reaction was not in the direction of bombs only. Nuclear reactors designed for the controlled production of useful energy multiplied in number 
and inefficiency since Fermi's first pile. Many nations now possess them, and they are used for a variety of purposes. In 1954, the first nuclear submarine, the USS Nautilus, was launched by the United States. Its power was obtained entirely from a nuclear reactor, and it was not necessary for it to rise to the surface at short intervals in order to recharge its batteries. Nuclear submarines have crossed the Arctic Ocean under the ice cover and have circumnavigated the globe without surfacing. In 1959, both the Soviet Union and the United States launched nuclear-powered surface vessels. The Soviet ship was the icebreaker, Lenin, and the American ship was a merchant vessel, the NS Savannah. In the 1950s, nuclear reactors were also used as the source of power for the production of electricity for civilian use. The Soviet Union built a small station of this sort in 1954, which had a capacity of 5,000 kilowatts. The British built one of 92,000 kilowatt capacity, which they called Calder Hall. The first American nuclear reactor for civilian use began operation at Shippingport, Pennsylvania in 1958. It was the first really full-scale civilian nuclear power plant in the world. The world appeared to have far greater resources of energy than had been expected. The fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas, were being used at such a rate that many speculated that the gas and oil would be gone in decades and the coal in centuries. Was it possible that uranium might now serve as a new source that would last indefinitely? It was rather disappointing that it was uranium-235 which underwent fission, because that isotope made up only 0.7% of the uranium that existed. If uranium-235 were all we had and all we ever could have, the energy supply of the world would still be rather too limited. There were other possible nuclear fuels, however. There was plutonium-239, which would also fission under neutron bombardment. It had an ordinary half-life for a radioactive change in which it gave off alpha particles, of 24,300 years, which is long enough to make it easy to handle. But how can plutonium-239 be formed in sufficient quantities to be useful? After all, it doesn't occur in nature. Surprisingly, that turned out to be easy. Uranium-238 atoms will absorb many of the neutrons that are constantly leaking out of the reactor and will become first neptunium-239 and then plutonium-239. The plutonium, being a different element from the uranium, can be separated from uranium and obtained in useful quantities. Such a device is called a breeder reactor because it breeds fuel. Indeed, it can be so designed to produce more plutonium-239 than the uranium-235 it uses up, 
so that you actually end up with more nuclear fuel than you started with. In this way, all the uranium on Earth, and not just uranium-235, can be considered potential nuclear fuel. The first breeder reactor was completed at Arco, Idaho in August 1951, and on December 20, produced the very first electricity on Earth to come from nuclear power. Nevertheless, breeder reactors for commercial use are still a matter for the future. Another isotope capable of fissioning under nuclear bombardment is uranium-233. It does not occur in nature, but was formed in the laboratory by Seaborg and others in 1942. It has a half-life of 162,000 years. It can be formed from naturally occurring thorium-232. Thorium-232 will absorb a neutron to become thorium-233. Then two beta particles are given off so that the thorium-233 becomes first proactinium-233 and then uranium-233. If a thorium shell surrounds a nuclear reactor, fissionable uranium-233 is formed within it and is easily separated from the thorium. In this way, thorium is also added to the list of Earth's potential nuclear fuels. If all the uranium and thorium in the Earth's crust, including the thin scattering of those elements through granite, for instance, were available for use, we might get up to 100 times as much energy from it as from all the coal and oil on the planet. Unfortunately, it is very unlikely that we will ever be able to make use of all the uranium and thorium. It is widely and thinly spread through the crustal rocks, and much of it could not be extracted without using up more energy than would be supplied by it once isolated. Another problem rests with the nature of the fission reaction. When the uranium-235 nucleus, or plutonium-239, or uranium-233, undergoes fission, it breaks up into any of a large number of middle-sized nuclei that are radioactive, much more intensely radioactive than the original fuel. It was from among these fission products that isotopes of element 61 were first obtained in 1945. Coming from the nuclear fire, it reminded its discoverers of Prometheus, who stole fire from the sun in the Greek myths, and so it was called Prometheum. The fission products still contain energy, and some of them can be used in lightweight nuclear batteries. Such nuclear batteries were first built in 1954. Some batteries using plutonium-238 rather than fission products have been put to use in powering artificial satellites over long periods. Unfortunately, only a small proportion of the fission products can be put to profitable use. Most must be disposed of. They are dangerous because the radiations they give off are deadly and cannot be detected by the ordinary senses. They are very difficult to dispose of safely 
and they must not be allowed to get into the environment, especially since some of them remain dangerous for decades or even centuries. End of Section 5 Recording by Blaine Aiden McCoy, Riverside, California March 2019